Well, good morning. How's everybody feeling this morning? Pretty good? Yeah? Still waking up a little bit? Hopefully got some coffee in you, maybe two cups. Uh, I know who always has two cups because you get up in the middle of the service to go to the bathroom. (laughs) I can see you. Um, Yeah, so it's exciting to be here. You know, it's incredible that I get to do this. I really do feel that way. I want you to know in my heart that I wake up on Sunday mornings and I think I cannot believe that I get to speak to all of you and I have the privilege of doing that. And um, so, yeah, I don't just want to move past that. It's a privilege to serve you this way and to be part of your life and uh, part of your spiritual journey. If you're a guest with us here today, man, we hope that you have had a great experience thus far from the time you pulled onto the parking lot uh, until this moment right now. And, and uh, hopefully you've, you feel the love and you feel accepted and you feel like this place is for you. We've prayed for you. We've kind of designed this place for you. And so, uh, yeah. Uh, we are in a talk, we're going to do a talk today uh, that's kind of a standalone talk. Normally we do stuff in series three or four weeks at a time, but today's kind of an in-between talk. We're going to, it's Labor Day weekend, and the title of my talk today is I Love My Job. We're going to get to that in just a little bit, uh, but Labor Day is interesting, isn't it? Uh, it's kind of the, the official end of the summer. Isn't that crazy? It's, you know, the sun is moving and it's getting a little chillier and it's kind of some sweatshirt weather. Are you excited about sweatshirts? Anyone? <laughs> Yeah, so that's good for a change of pace, and uh, it's also the, the official end of wearing white, no more white, so for those of you who are wearing white today, I can see you, uh, no more white, next Sunday, switch it up. Uh, it's also the official end of hot dog season. Who knew? Google it. You could Google it right now in the service. We've got great Wi-Fi here. Um, <laughs> I didn't know that. Official end of the hot dog season. So, so to honor, to honor you, you, you and Labor Day, we're, you're all going to get a hot dog on your way out of the service today. <laughs> no, you're not. We, we priced it out. It was way too expensive to do that. Uh, so, um, cheap laughs, cheap laughs. Anyway, so Labor Day weekend. It is an interesting holiday. It's over 100 years old. Isn't that crazy? I can't, and back in 1894, the first Labor Day parade and the history behind it is pretty fascinating. Uh, you know, what we've come to know today is the eight hour work week or the 40 hour work week or the eight hour day and the 40 hour work week was just non-existent. Weekends, you know, back in those days, non-existent. The holiday is actually designed to, to give workers a day off and to honor them, the, the, United, the American worker, uh, for their contributions towards the prosperity and the well-being of our nation. And so, uh, you know, just a little bit of history there. It makes you appreciate tomorrow. It's, it's just not a day off. Like people really, you know, a lot of people even sacrifice their lives for us to have uh, the current work situation that many of us get to enjoy today. So, uh, but you didn't come here for a history lesson on Labor Day, uh, so I'm not going to give it to you. Uh, but it does give us a little bit of appreciation. I do want to talk about work today because a lot of us are working, and if you're not working right now, you probably will work. And if you don't have uh, a job that you get paid, you're working at home. I'm talking to stay-at-home moms and dads, and that is a very real job. <laughs> uh, I watch it happen all the time in our home. And so I want to talk about work today. You know what's interesting? Uh, there was a 2013 study that Gallup did, a workplace study that said 70% of the American workers hate their jobs or are totally disengaged in their jobs. 70%, seven out of 10 workers, if you own a company, are hating coming to work. (laughs) I mean, that's incredible. Three out of 10 are going, yeah, this is exciting and I'm engaged and I love what I do. 
Now, if you're part of the 30% that really loves your job and, and, and you go to work energized, you, you, listen, you, you want to take notes today because you're going to hear some stuff that you're going to be able to go to work on Tuesday and share with the 7 out of 10 that hate their jobs, okay? So God wants to use you to bless other people. I don't know if you've figured that out yet, but that's part, of, that's part of this journey with Christ. God wants to use you to bless other people. So don't tune me out if you love your job, okay? If you don't have a job, you can use this stuff to help, to help other people. Seven out of 10 people hate their job or are totally disengaged. Now that makes me sad because we spend a lot of time at work. Do you agree with this? In fact, if you do the math, if you work eight hours a day for 40 hours a week for 30 years, okay, on average, you're going to be somewhere around 60 to 70,000 hours. The exact number is 62,000 hours of your life at work. And it makes me incredibly sad to think that people would spend that much of their life disenfranchised or unhappy or disengaged. How about you? Yes or no? makes me very, very sad. You know, people hate their jobs for lots of different reasons. They don't like their boss. <laughs> they don't like their manager. They feel undervalued. They feel like they don't get paid enough. They feel like there's not enough uh, freedom in their job. Sometimes people are bored with their jobs. Sometimes it's the people that they're working with that causes them to hate their job, <laughs> coworkers and things like that. There's lots of reasons why people hate their job. And when people start talking about the, you know, all the reasons or why they hate their job or why they're disengaged, you know, there's not a lot of good advice out there. Have you noticed this? People usually say one or two things or a variation of, of, of somewhere in the middle of these two things, but they usually say things like, you know what, suck it up. Everybody hates their job. <laughs> Come on, let's go. Welcome to the real world. Yeah, work is terrible and, and, and so is mine. I hate my job too. And so it's like, okay, you know. Now there's some truth to that, okay? Everybody's, I don't care if you're playing in the NBA, right? It's a long season <laughs> in the NBA, 70-some games or whatever they play, 80 games. Like there are, there's got to be days where they're like, I can't play one more basketball game, even though I'd like to try it out, though. That would have been fun. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so, so everybody's job is going gonna, is gonna to be annoying at times, and it's going to be difficult, and, and so there's something to that, but it's, 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 I think that, that, that advice is incomplete. Then the other side of the coin is this. Well, if you hate your job, just quit. You ever get that advice? If you hate your job so much, just go get another one, you know, and it's and they, how I do that. I got all these bills to pay. I got this family to raise. It's easy. You know, our, our, our culture glorifies walking into the boss's office and saying, no, I quit, you know, but practically speaking, you know, you see that on sitcoms, but in real life, that's, that's difficult to do. Well, I think there's actually a third line of advice that I want to give you today, and that is that you can learn to love your job. Now, the key word there is learn. This is a learned thing. You and I can learn to love our job. And I'm gonna give you three ideas today. One is more of an action step. The two are more of kind of thought process, thought changes that you need to have or different perspective that you need to have in your life. So let's, let's jump in. You interested? Is this interesting stuff? Is this relevant, right? Seven out of 10 of you apparently hate your job. So this is gonna be good stuff. You're in the right place if that's where you're at. Number one, if you wanna learn to love your job, you have to get prepared. Before work, you gotta get prepared. I don't know if you've ever had this experience before, but I have. I've been on several sports teams, baseball, basketball, played on different, different teams. And I've had coaches look at me at times and say to me, hey, where's your head? <laughs> 
Like, you left your game at home today. Like, you're physically present, but man, where's your mind? You're, like, you're not here. Have you ever had a coach tell you that? Or maybe it's not, not in sports. Maybe it's in some sort of other organized thing that you were involved in. And the, the coach or the authority or whoever it is says, come on, you're, you're physically here, but you're not mentally here. Now, what does a coach mean when they say that? Here's what they mean. Your performance is subpar. You're not playing at your potential. You're physically present, but you are not prepared for this game. Ever been there? Ever show up for a game or some type of performance and you weren't, you weren't at your best because you, your mind and your heart were somewhere else because you didn't prepare? See, I have a theory. I have a theory. I don't have any statistics or research to prove this. This is just my theory based on an observation, okay? So you can disagree with me if you want. Here's my theory. I think most workers, most American workers roll out of bed they, they squeeze in just enough time to maybe grab a shower, maybe shove some food in their mouth, maybe get their kids to school on time or late, and then barely get to work on time. And they show up totally unprepared. Now, I, that's just a theory I have based on what I've seen in automobiles at around eight o'clock in the morning. <laughs> have you ever seen people at eight o'clock in the morning in their cars? They've got the mascara going and the cell phone going and somehow they're driving their car. <laughs> Why? Because they, are, they did not leave themselves any time to get prepared to go to work. They're showing up just kind of like in this, in this frazzled state of mind and heart and it's just like, just get there you know, on time to work and, and, but they're not ready to go and then the day starts and the demands of the day starts and you got all these things that you have to do and the boss has you know, things that you want to do and all these different things and, and the pressures of work and all the things that start happening. You're not ready to handle all those things so you end up you know, responding in anger or responding with frustration or responding with fear or anxiety or worry at all you know, because your heart and your mind is not prepared for work. Now, that's just a theory that I have. I can't prove it with research. You know, a lot of people feel that happiness at work is an outside-in job. It's something that external circumstances are supposed to take uh, are, are supposed to make us happy at work. I, 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 hap I happen to believe that that is incorrect. Here's what the Bible says. Listen, listen to this. Proverbs 17:22. A joyful heart is good medicine. All that simply means is that a good attitude or happiness on the inside, in my soul, in the soul area, in the inner person, if I have happiness there, if I have joy there, then it's going to have a healing effect on my life and on my coworkers or my management or whoever, or my subordinates, whoever's under me. It's gonna have, there's gonna be some healing powers coming out of me because of the joy that is inside of me. However, on the back end of that, a crushed spirit dries up the, pone, the bones or saps your strength, another version says. You have, you have a co-worker like this? They just come to work and they're just sapped and they sap you and they're negative and they gossip and they're always complaining about the conditions and you know that's the outside in approach and they're complaining about the, the, the workload or the hours or whatever it is, right? You try to get, get away from those people. Here's my question today. I don't want to focus on them. I wanna focus on the, on, the, on the person on the top. The joyful heart is good medicine. Here's my question, how did the joy get in there? Isn't that a good question? The, if the joyful heart is good medicine, if, if happiness comes in and, and flows out, how did it get in there in the first place? See, most people would say, well, it's because the conditions were right. 
I got good pay, I got plenty of you know, vacation time, you know, I've got this incredibly encouraging boss who always affirms me and values me you know, in front of the other teammates. You know? it's, just a, it's just an incredible work environment. That's what most people are waiting for, but that's not how it works. It's happiness at work is actually an inside out job. Sean Aker, he wrote a book called The Happiness Advantage. Um, he did a lot of studies on this. The, the, the subtitle of the book is Seven Principles of Positive Psychology That Fuels Success and Performance at Work. He did a TED Talk. Um, if you don't know what a TED Talk is, it's basically short talks that you can watch online, all different types of you know, areas, topics. Uh, you, know, you can pretty much watch one on any topic you want to. And he did a TED Talk that apparently resonated with a, a lot of people because six million people have viewed, it, viewed his TED Talk. It's unbelievable, it's about 12 minutes long. And so um, in, in all of his research, his body of research, which he did at Harvard, he found that 10% of our happiness comes from external circumstances, 10%. But 90% comes from how we interpret those circumstances. In, in the book and in his talk, this is basically what he says here. I love this quote. It's not reality that shapes us or, 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 the, or the conditions outside of us that shape us. No, 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 no. It's the lens we use to view our world that shapes our reality. What he's talking about is your perspective and how you interpret the situations and the circumstances and the outside conditions that take place that determines your reality. If you can change your lens, then you can change your happiness. And now, he put this to the test at Harvard. He, he did this big study of Harvard students. And, and basically, when, when you're a freshman, you come into Harvard, you're all filled with joy because you've got accepted, you've been chosen, you've been working your whole life to get into Harvard, and you finally got in and everybody's happy. And then a semester goes by and all of the pressure and all of the tests and all the competition and all the papers and all the grades and now you're not number one in your class anymore because all these kids were number one where they came from, right? Now they're not number one anymore and so there's all of this outside stuff that starts to take place and what Sean did, found or discovered in his research is that the joy levels just kind of went out the window and in fact, there's a, the, the students at Harvard are among the most depressed students at any college in America. Think about that. But there were a few students that, in the study that he found that maintained joy levels that were relatively the same as when they first came in as freshmen. And you know what the, you know what the, the answer was or what, the, what the, the secret was? It was their perspective. It was their lens. Here's what Sean discovered. He discovered that those students who maintained joy levels throughout their career at, at Harvard continued to think about attending Harvard as a privilege. It's a privilege to be here. Not many people get to come to Harvard, wow. And they interpreted their workload and their test taking and their papers and the competition through that lens. See how that works? Now, the secret then would be to have the proper lens at work. See, it's not a reality that shapes us. It's not an external inside. It's not an outside in, in approach. It's an inside out approach. So how do we develop the proper lens so we can enjoy happier levels, happy, uh, higher levels of, of happiness at work? Well, you have to get prepared. And in order to get prepared, you have to have a great morning routine in your notes. Getting prepared requires a great morning routine. You cannot roll out of bed, listen, shove a piece of toast in your mouth, you know, m grab a shower, comb your hair, put some mascara on, and get to work and expect to do well. <laughs> it's not how it works. Listen, you may be physically present, but you're not present. You're not ready to, to interpret the, 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 the difficulties of work. You're not prepared in your heart. 
You have to have a great morning routine. Listen, this is just, this is, this is research. You can go out there and this isn't even a, a, a church thing or a God thing. This is, just, this is just a reality. You have to get yourself ready. So let me give you a couple of ideas that I do to get myself ready. Number one, in the morning when I wake up, I give myself, this isn't number one, but I give myself about an hour, okay? You can ask my wife, she sees it every day. I give myself about an hour. And the first thing I do is I read. <clears throat> the first thing I do is I read. Because if you're like me, you go to sleep, you have ridiculous, stupid dreams. They're dark, they're twisted, right? And you wake up in the morning, you think, am I even a Christian? Anybody else? <laughs> like, what was that, you know? And so I have, to, I have to read to make sure that I'm all like centered again and aligned with God's will and his word. And, and by the way, that is what the Bible is. It's his, his value system and his will and his ways. And so you have to read his word. And so I did it again this morning. I got out, you know, I'm doing the one-year Bible, got into the word. That's the first thing I do is I read. But I don't just read the Bible, I read other stuff too. You know, I happen to be a pastor, so I read, in the, I read something in the area of my profession, something, something some other pastor wrote or some retired guy or whatever, and I read on my specific area of expertise. If I was a car salesman, I'd probably read something about car sales. If I was a teacher, I'd probably read something about teaching, just so I could stay sharp in my field. You have to read. The second thing I do is I meditate. I take about five or 10 minutes to take a, a thought. Now, a lot of people think that meditation is emptying in your head. <laughs> that might be the Hindu version of meditation, but it's not the Christian version of meditation. <laughs> in fact, we made it up. And meditation in Joshua 1.8 is taking a thought and focusing on that one thought and mulling it over in your mind until it becomes part of the DNA or the fabric of your thinking. And then that thought stays with you through the entire day. Let me give you an example. If I meditate on Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, which says this, keep your heart with all diligence because out of it flow the issues of life, right? If I keep that verse with me, uh, if I meditate on that verse for five or 10 minutes in the morning, it stays with me all day. And guess what? I'm watching my heart all day long. I'm not just reading something in the morning. Have you ever done this, read something in the morning, and then by, by, by I don't know, 10 o'clock, you don't know what you read? <laughs> you have totally forgotten what you've read. Anybody? Yes or no? Yeah, it's because you haven't meditated. You have to take that thought, whatever God revealed to you, you have to meditate on it and take it with you through the entire day so you can put it into practice. And that's getting your heart ready for work. See how that works? And the last thing I do is, and I do some other things, but I'll just give you three. Uh, I listen. I did it again this morning. I listen. I've got incredible worship music uh, downloaded on my phone. I've had people help me to do it. I said, I want this, I want music. I want the best worship music on my phone. And so after I'm done reading and meditating, I'll put some two or three, four songs in my, you know, this morning it was Good, Good Father. Some of you know that song. It's just, and what does it do? It gets my heart prepared to do the work that God has called me to do. There's, there's a powerful effect of music on our life. But it's not just music, it's also podcasts. And if you don't know what a podcast is, just ask your grandson or your granddaughter. They'll fill you in. It's really good stuff. Um, but there are podcasts out there that, that, that will lift your spirit, that will get your heart and mind ready to go to work. And then you show up at work and guess what? You bring it. You bring the joy with you. You're not looking for the boss to say something nice. You're not looking for the coworkers to say, a boy, a girl. You are bringing the joy. You're not looking to your external circumstances for happiness. You are bringing it with you to work. And guess what? That joy is good medicine. You with me? Yes or no? Number one, you gotta, get, you gotta get prepared. Now we believe in preparation because don't we give our kids like special breakfast on test day? <laughs> See, you moms, you do this. Like all the, other, all the other days, it's like, you know, have a bowl of cereal. But on test day, you're gonna get some pancakes and some oatmeal and some strawberries and some orange juice because we want you to be prepared. Why wouldn't we do that for ourselves every single day? Number two, number two, you wanna learn to love your job. You have to understand that all work, all work done well that helps people has dignity. All work that is done well 
and helps people has dignity. This is so powerful. Tim Keller wrote a book called Every Good Endeavor. This is, if you want to go deeper on this whole issue of faith and work and how these overlap, get this book. It goes way deeper than I can go today. But I do want to cover one thing that he says here. In the book, he talks about something Martin Luther said that was based off of Psalm chapter 147, verse 13 and 14. Let's look at this verse really quick. Psalm 147. It should be right there. There we go. <clears throat> for he has strengthened, now he's giving God credit for some things here. The psalmist is. For he has strengthened the bars of your gates, so the security of your city, and he's blessed your children w- uh, within your walls. Watch verse 14. Watch this. He sends peace across your nation, and he satisfies your hunger with the finest wheat. Two things, two things that God is getting credit for here. Security and food. He, pre- he provides safety for you in the city, and he provides food for you to satisfy your hunger. Now watch what Martin Luther says here. And by the way, Martin Luther's a big, big deal in church history. In fact, we wouldn't be here today without him, the whole Reformation thing. Anyway, um, so here's what Luther says. By the word bars, we must understand not only iron, the iron bar that the smith can make, but everything else that helps to protect us, such as government, good city ordinances, good order, wise leaders and rulers. This is a gift of God. And then Keller comments and says this. How does God give a city security? Isn't it through lawmakers? Isn't it through police officers? Isn't it through those working in government and politics? So God cares for our civic needs through the workers or through the work of others whom he calls to that work. And then he talks about the food. This is what Luther says. God could easily give you you grain and fruit without your plowing, plowing and planting, but he chooses not to do so. He works through the farmer to provide the food for you. He continues and says these things or these jobs are literally the masks of God behind which he wants to remain concealed and do all things. What is the point? The point is this, that God provides things for you and I through workers. I remember as a little boy thinking about my dad, and he was a letter carrier back then, they called him mailman. Um, and I was growing up, I was thinking, hey, dad, you know, don't you ever want to do something else? But you have the same route every day. Put the mail in the box <laughs> every day. And in my head, I'm thinking, you know, how boring is that? That's what my dad does for a living, right? You know, he's a letter carrier. And, you know, I used to just think that was just, you know, I don't know. Insignificant is the word. And then I got older and I realized, man, it's important that this letter gets to the destination when we put it in the mailbox. Or it's important that we receive a letter on time that was given by somebody else in our mailbox. And I started to understand the service that the United States Postal Service actually Uh, provides. You know what it is? That's God. That's God working through people like my father to to bless us and help us to live well. See, every work that is done well and helps people has dignity, no matter what it is. Does that make sense? Here's how I wrote it in your notes. Watch this. God distributes his favor and blessing through your work. Now what this allows us to do is understand that what I do matters. I'm helping someone, even if it's, an, even if it's indirectly. You're still providing a service that eventually will help someone learn something, have something, obtain something, eat something, be safe. Every work that is done well and blesses other people 
has dignity. Now, if your work hurts people, <laughs> you know, if you're, if, you're, if you're making money doing something that's like screwing people over, listen, that's, you got to work that out, okay? That doesn't have dignity. You got to switch jobs perhaps, but I'll leave that between you and the Holy Spirit, okay? Is that good? Okay. Every work that helps people and is done well has dignity. Let me give you this third one really quick. You got to see the bigger story. This is my favorite one. Got to see the bigger story. What do I mean? Well, in Keller's book, this is what he writes. Your work will make no sense unless you put it into some kind of story. Your work will make no sense or have little meaning unless you put it into some type of story. What you do for a living has to be put into some story. Isn't this what we do when we hear something that doesn't make sense? We put it into a story to try to get some context, try to get some understanding. Like when I see somebody do something that doesn't make sense to me or behave in an erratic way, or hurt somebody, deliberately hurt someone, or say something that deliberately causes pain in someone's life, and I know that. When I, when I witness that, which, have anybody else witnessed that? A lot, a lot of times our reaction is, oh, what a creep, what a jerk. I can't, what a, what a, you know, and then you fill in the blanks with whatever, you know, adjectives you want. <laughs> or nouns, anyway. Um, but what I try to do, <clears throat> because God's called me to love everybody, I don't know if that's a, that's a thing when you're a Christian. You hear about it, love your neighbor as yourself. So that's a thing, right? So as a pastor especially, I have to try to love somebody. So when I see somebody do something or say something that doesn't make sense to me, here's what I do, ready? I just put it in a story. I just put it into a story. Well, that guy, that girl probably had a bad day. He's probably in a fight with his wife. That, that, that guy probably has a rebellious son that doesn't respect him. That guy probably has a boss that doesn't value him. Now, it, it, it may be all untrue, okay? I make it up. But what the story does in my mind is it helps me understand perhaps why he is acting that way or acting out that way. Does that make sense? Because even though I may not have gotten the story right, isn't there a story, yes or no? Maybe they were abused as a child. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, when I put that story together in my mind, I begin to think, you know what? We could work with them. I could work with that guy. I could work with that girl. There's hope. And so that's how I handle that as a pastor. Otherwise, I'm just going to be mad at everybody. And so will you. <laughs> and you can't, be, you, you can't be mad at everybody. Like Jesus said one time, he said, hey, you'll know them by their, by their love for each other. So we've got this love thing going on for each other, right? But we need a story to understand. Your job needs a story. Now, here's, unfortunately, the story that many of us tell ourselves when it comes to our job. This is how I make a living. My job is how I pay the bills. That's the story. And that's an incomplete story. Or the other story is this. This is all about my happiness. You know, I, I work here because I want to be happy. And that's a, that's a, a poor story as well, because guess what? Your, your external circumstances at work are going to go negative at some point, and then you're not going to be happy. So bad story. And this story over here is really bad, because what happens if we say to ourselves, this is just how I make a living, we separate our faith from our work life. We compartmentalize. We put all of our work life here. We put our faith and religious activities over here. And the two don't even come together. And so what ends up happening in the long run, if we live that story, that this is just where I make a living and this is just where I pay the bills and this is just how what I do for a job, what happens is we end up having a license to act in ways that we shouldn't act as Christ followers. We're rude. We're obnoxious. We're, we may even shade the truth. We may lie, deceive. We may steal from the company, gossip about the boss and get caught up in the culture of, of a whatever culture is at your job? Why? Because this, after all, this is just where I go to work. This is just how I pay the, pay the bills. It has nothing to do with my faith. Can I just tell you that that 
is the wrong story, is an incomplete story, because there's this thing in the Bible that says that Jesus is Lord, and he's Lord over the whole enchilada. He's Lord, and he's in charge, and he's king over the whole outfit. There's no compartmentalizing here. He's Lord at work, he's Lord at home, he's Lord at church, he's Lord at small group, he's Lord when you're raising your children, he's Lord when you're talking with your spouse, he's Lord over the whole thing. Does that make sense? So let me give you the real story for your work that'll help you to love your job. Here's the story, ready? Your job is the place and the means of your discipleship to Jesus. This will change your life, I promise you. Your job is the place, let me explain what that means. It's the location where your discipleship to Jesus is on display. It's the place where your discipleship takes place. It's the place where you and Jesus live together because you spend a third of your life at work. Does that make sense? So your discipleship, your faith is played out at work. You're supposed to be living your faith and drawing others into the kingdom of God while you're at work. It's the bigger story. There's your job and then there's the bigger story that's going on, which is the kingdom of God that you're part of advancing as a Christ follower. Does that make sense? Your discipleship is happening at work. Listen to what Dallas Willard said about this. Fantastic book, Divine Conspiracy. If you have time, you'll love it. It's a bit thick, but it's worth it. He says this. Not to find your job to be a primary place of discipleship is to automatically exclude a major part, if not most, of your waking hours from life with God. It's to cut them out. Say, it's, in other words, if, if your story is, this is just where I make a living, this is just how I pay the, pay the bills, it has nothing to do with God or my relationship with God, you're cutting him out of a major part of your life. And therefore, you do not partner with him to advance his kingdom. You're not drawing coworkers into the kingdom. You're not making an influence for Christ with your, with your manager or your boss. Because what, after all, this is just about money. This is just about paying the bills. This is just about getting a raise. This is just about career advancement. Does that make sense? And you compartmentalize. Let me tell you something really quick. If your faith doesn't work at work, it doesn't work at all. Some of you need to write that down. Because that was good. <laughs> I don't say many good things, but I thought that was good. If your faith doesn't work at work, then it doesn't work, because that's where it's supposed to work. Your discipleship is on display at work. So if you're not kind, if you're not gentle, if you're not patient, if you're not loving, it doesn't work. Here's what the Apostle Paul said. If you don't don't believe me, it's like, is that in the Bible at all? Watch this. And whatever you do, in word or deed. Now that covers the whole outfit, right? That covers your whole life. Whatever you say and whatever you do at all times, here's what I want you to do. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now what does it mean to do something in the name of the Lord Jesus? It means to do it as his representative. It means to do it as he would do it. That's what a disciple is learning to do. A disciple is learning to live their life as Jesus would live their life if he were them. A disciple is learning to live his or her life as Jesus lived his life when he was here on earth. You're doing it in the name of Christ as his representative. So how would you write that report in the name of Jesus? How would you have that business meeting in the name of Jesus? How would you go in and handle that conflict in the name of Jesus? How would you go in and teach that class in the name of Jesus? See, this is the way we have to think. And if we're not thinking this way, we're compartmentalizing. Well, this is just my job. This is just how I make money. This is how I pay the the bills. And then I'll go to church over here, a small group, and do my spiritual stuff. Not so. Wrong story. Whatever we do in word or deed, we do it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it doesn't just mean as his representative. It also means from his strength or from his power. 
We're drawing upon divine power to do what we need to do at work. You know what grace is? Grace isn't just about forgiveness. It is. It's not just unmerited favor. It is. But grace is receiving strength to do what you cannot do by yourself. Does that make sense? Grace is receiving strength to do what you cannot do by yourself. So when you do something in the name of Jesus, address that problem or fix that whatever or whatever it is that you do for a living, you're doing it with divine resources behind you if you're doing it in the name of Jesus. That's what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. Now, that's, it's, discipleship is the place of, uh, I'm sorry, work is the place of, uh, of your discipleship and it's also the means. Now, I wish I had a whole sermon to speak about this, but I'll just make it short, okay? What do I mean by means? Well, we talk about Bible reading and prayer and scripture memory and solitude and silence as means to grow you up spiritually. But I believe, I believe that your job is one of the major ways that God is transforming your life. And when you view that, when you view your job that way, it changes your whole perspective. What do I mean by that? Well, have you ever noticed that your, your job is difficult? Yes or no? Anybody? Well, what's that difficulty all about? Is it just there to annoy the heck out of you? You know what I'm saying? It's just like God's just this like up this mean person who likes to steal your joy so he makes your job difficult. No, come on, that's a bad story. Some of you live that out. That's why you don't like God. <laughs> anyway, it's not the story. The story is this. God is putting us in situations that are difficult so that he can cause us to be transformed. So he can cause us to, to trust in him and depend on him and not ourselves. And that's what a disciple does. Does that make sense? He's putting us in situations where we have to demonstrate it the fruit of the spirit which is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. That's why your job is difficult. That's what God is doing with your job. He's using it as a means to transform you. Now, some of you should be sitting there going, oh my gosh, that changes everything. It does change everything. It's a means to your transformation. It's a means to your Christ-likeness. And now you can approach your job totally differently. Now, now you know the answer why your job is difficult. What's God doing? What is he doing in my life? He's trying to make me more like Jesus. He's trying to make me into a little Christ through my job. Now it's easy for me to connect those dots because I'm, I'm a pastor. <laughs> but it's not so easy if, you're, if you do mortgages or if you teach a class or if you fix stuff or... I don't know if you sell stuff. It's not as easy. We, th we think, well, that's just secular work. There's no such thing as secular work. Hey, if you're a Christ follower, watch this. Now I'm way off rails here, okay? If you're a Christ follower, you are in full-time ministry. So let that sink in for a second. If you are a Christ follower, you are in full-time ministry no matter what you do. People say, oh, the pastor's in full-time ministry, or the staff here at Emmanuel or at any church, they're in full-time ministry. They get paid to be in the ministry. Hogwash. Hogwash. Jesus is Lord over the whole outfit for every single one of us, and we serve him every single day of our lives, whether it's in word or whether it's in deed. You are in full-time ministry wherever you work your job. That is the story you live in. Hey, let me wrap this up. 70% of Americans say they hate their job and they're disengaged. That's sad. You do not have to hate your job. You can go at your job and learn to love it by getting ready. Give yourself an hour, maybe start with 30 minutes. Getting ready, understanding that your work has dignity because you're doing it well and it blesses people. And you see the bigger story of what's going on. And that way, you can learn to love your job. You know what's crazy about working. Jesus had a job. Did you know that? Anybody know what Jesus did when he was here on earth? What was his job? Anybody? Say it if you know it. Yeah, he was a carpenter. 
Some of you are like, he was? I didn't know that. Yeah, he built stuff. He built tables and built stuff with his hands and used axes and whatever you use, <laughs> whatever they had back then. Can you imagine the, the chairs that Jesus must have built? I mean, they must have been some chairs. <laughs> wow. Imagine Jesus playing tennis. <laughs> Dallas Willard talks about that. He probably would be, he probably beat all of us in tennis. It's a good thought, don't you think? What about basketball? I don't know about that one. <laughs> I'd like to see Jesus shoot a three-pointer. Anyway, he, he was a carpenter. He had a job. He had a job. He got paid. He did work for people, and then he got, a, he got paid. And I'm sure at some point, people didn't pay him, because isn't that the way business works sometimes? You do work for somebody, and they don't pay. He had to have dealt with that because he lived in the real world as a carpenter. But it wasn't his job. He had another job. He had a job, but he had another job. What was his other job? Well, in Matthew chapter 28, 20, it says this. It says, the son of man came not to be served. And it wasn't his time to rule as king. That's what that means. There is a time coming when he'll have, his kingdom will be present in full. He didn't come to be served, but he came to serve. How did he do that? He gave his life as a ransom. He died on a cross to purchase life for you. He died on the cross so that you and I could have life, so our soul could come to life and have spiritual life in him. Yes, forgiveness of sins. Yes, removal of guilt and shame. All of that beautiful stuff that will last forever. But also, also, life with God right now in this moment. Life with God when you go to work Tuesday morning. Life with God as you celebrate Memorial Day tomorrow and you have a barbecue or you play soccer with your kids or you throw a frisbee or you do whatever you do. He's with you. That's what he died for. He died on a cross to be with you now and forever. Now, I think life with God is much better than life without God. How about you? That's just, that's my personal conviction. Some of you are living life without God and you don't have to because Jesus died on a cross and he paid the ransom payment so he could live with you right now and forever. And the way you can step into that eternal life is by putting your faith in Jesus Christ and saying, yes, Jesus, I believe in you. I believe it's a concrete fact that 2,000 years ago, you died in a cross for me that I could have life. And I believe it and I trust you. If that's where you're at right now, and only you know, only you know, because it's in your heart, I'm gonna invite you to pray a simple prayer. And if you feel the tugging on your heart, hey, do not ignore it because you know who that is? That is the Holy Spirit. That is God saying, yes, now, yes, this is for you right now. Pray this simple prayer and ask Christ to be your savior and come into your life. Jesus, you are the ransom payment. You died for me in my place. You rose again, conquering the penalty of sin, removing the separation between me and your Father. Put my confidence and trust in you right now. I lay my life in your hands. I want to live with you forever, starting right now. Please wash me, forgive me, cleanse me, and make me your very own child. And precious Jesus, may I honor you 
with the rest of my life on this planet. It's in your name I pray, amen. Hey, if you just prayed that prayer, we would like to rejoice with you, wouldn't we, team? Absolutely. Best decision you'll ever make. And the way somebody told me when I made that decision, you need to pick up a Bible and you need to start reading it and reading it and reading it because God's word is a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. So here's what we'd like to do as a church. We'd like to put a free gift in your hands if you prayed to receive Christ today. There's tables back here to my left and my right. Fabulous folks will put one of these in your hands. And I don't want you to just take it, put it on the shelf. I want you to take it and I want you to go to today's date and begin reading. And there are little five minute readings each day. You get into the word of God, I promise you. Uh, you will start to grow in your faith. So it is exciting that we get to do this. My hope, my hope is that you will go to work on Tuesday and you will be fired up, that you will bring it. You will bring it to work and people will be like, what's wrong with you? You know, it's like, well, I don't trust in my external circumstances anymore. My joy comes from within. I've got ready this morning. I'm ready to go. This has dignity. I'm in the bigger story. And they're like, whoa. Bring it, why not? We only get one life, so bring it with you. Are you excited or what? All right, all right, let's pray. Jesus, we can do this. We can do this because of your strength, because of your grace. You give us the strength to do what we cannot do in our own energy. And so, Father, we trust in you. Thank you for the jobs. Thank you that we have work. I pray for those who are out of work right now that you'd help them find work because there there's dignity in it. It's partnering up with you to further your kingdom. God, help us to love our jobs and to be a light at our jobs for you and to see your kingdom advanced through our influence at work. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. If you prayed to receive Christ, go grab a Bible and we'll see you next week, brand new series. God bless.